It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. Experience more episodes, videos, and Bible study resources at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 25 years, and Julie, a longtime contributor, is also with us. Today's episode, Is My Christian Judgment Tainted by Bias? Part 1. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? James 1, 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I was recently summoned for jury duty. As I sat in the room at the beginning of the day, the court and its representatives showed some really informative introductory videos on what to expect and look out for when serving on a jury. The main topics they focused on was bias. Their premise was that we all have biases and that we all can be in danger of following them rather than following the simple facts of a case. I was absolutely struck by the significant efforts to enlighten and warn about the sometimes subtle but incredibly common enemy of justice. Now, our claiming to be Christian does not somehow magically release us from our previous biases. In fact, our claims to Christianity may even be in jeopardy because of our personal biases. How do we learn to recognize this devious and damaging tendency? As we explore how bias affects all of us, we're going to look at it only today from a negative perspective. In other words, we're not going to consider having a bias towards absolute truth or towards God's wisdom as something that's in any way injurious. So an example of a positive bias is how Jesus was biased in that he only did what God told him to do regardless of the circumstances. Let's define bias. Bias is a noun, meaning an inclination of temperament, outlook, prejudice, bent, or tendency. For this episode, our working definition of bias will be an inclination or outlook that prevents an unprejudiced consideration of a matter. The working definition, I want to say it again, an inclination or outlook that prevents an unprejudiced consideration of a matter. That's how we're defining bias as we go through this two-part series. Now, look, we believe God is 100% unbiased as his plan justly, wisely, and lovingly includes all of humanity. Let's look at, for a basis for this, 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 4 to 7. So Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people and brought them back to the Lord the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land in all their fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. But some see a contradiction between God showing favoritism and being biased. He's never arbitrary with his choices, and we know they're for the ultimate good reasons, but he does show favorites, Rick. So why is that being biased? Well, the favoritism of God is to draw people to himself. When he chose Abraham, he chose him because of his faith and his loyalty and his absolute dedication. So God's favoritism, quote-unquote, was a, an outgrowth of loyalty. And anybody could have become a Jew. Anybody at that time could have come to God and, and gone through the rituals to be favored as well. But people didn't want to because they wanted to do things their own way. So when God shows favoritism, it's to those who are willing to do things his way because he's above it all. He's not biased. We are. So we can't put our guidelines upon the Heavenly Father's uh, guidance. That's really how how we want to look at this thing. So we've got the chosen Jewish people showing God is completely unbiased. Let's go to a New Testament look at that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not 
redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, this verse gives us a sense of God being unbiased in several ways. First of all, it says God, he's the one who impartially judges according to one's own conduct. He understands and judges rightly. But you also see how he's not biased by the fact that he sent his only son to die. You don't do that if you're biased. You protect your own and you send somebody or something else. You buy it off. You don't sacrifice it off. So this really shows us how God is so far above the fray. So God is 100% unbiased. And and look, that's a really good thing because the gods of man are all biased. (laughs) They're, They're built based on the biases of humanity. God is different. He is above it all. We also believe that Jesus always was, is, and will be unbiased as well, as he always speaks, acts, and guides in accordance with God's word, God's will, and God's way. Simple scripture, John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I did not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is not biased because he reflects the impartiality of his Father. That's such an important aspect of looking at God, the Father of all, and Jesus, the Son, and our Lord. Both have this impartiality that rises above all of the the, the, the factions and the, the, the frustrations of humanity. You've got something you can rest in because it's above the fray. It's like, you know, you, you get into an airplane and it's pouring rain and the wind is blowing and you take off and it's awful and, and miserable until you get above the clouds. Jesus and God are above the clouds of bias. Now, Jesus, when he was on earth, Jesus, his impartiality was even used as a tool against him. And this is really fascinating. Matthew 22, 15 to 17. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? The Pharisees are trying to portray an honest dispute between themselves and these Herodians. The Herodians were members of the royal court of Herod, and therefore they represented the interests of Rome. So they're mostly a political body. The debate here was the Pharisees' disciples said, we should not pay a tax to Caesar. But the Herodians said, we should pay a tax to Caesar. But this was a trick. If Jesus answers that it's not proper to pay the taxes, the Herodians will label him as an enemy of Rome, turn him over to Herod or Pontius Pilate. If Jesus answers, yes, pay the tax, he's going to be discredited before this multitude, which hates the oppressive taxes of the Romans. He's got no way to answer without losing. Jesus responds brilliantly. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Bring me a coin. Whose likeness is on the coin? Caesar? Pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So in other words, he's talking about the motivation of those who are coming to him. And he suggests that debating the issue of tribute money, by doing so, these people are neglecting what's even more important, what they owe to God. They're missing the whole point. Yes, it's proper to pay your tax, but that's not relevant because what you owe to God is what's important. What are you doing with your life? It shouldn't be these few coins of tax money that you owe They couldn't trap him because he wouldn't pick one group over another. And that shows how incredibly wise and unbiased he was. He didn't need to get into the argument. He stood above it and showed them the truth of the matter, which incidentally bias generally misses, but we'll get into that a little bit more. We're going to ask several questions and and really focusing on, well, what does bias do? Well, first of all, it does many things that can and will damage any who give into it. We are all subject to bias. We all have weaknesses that end up showing themselves in bias, and it can be very, very damaging. Let's take a look at bias in action. Bias bows to no one. And that's, that's a pretty powerful statement. This bias is evident right after Jesus raised Lazarus. Let's look at 
a really dramatic example of how bias bows to no one. Again, this is right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. John 11, 45 to 53, we'll take the 45 to 48 to begin. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and saw what Jesus had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which he had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. So you'd think they'd say, Wow, this man (laughs) is doing amazing supernatural things. How can we support what's obviously God's work? Hmm, not exactly. (laughs) Continuing with verse 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We can see their obvious bias against Jesus. Right. And context is important here. Pax Romana means the peace of Rome. This is the description of the roughly 200-year time period that included the time of Jesus and the early church. This is the golden age of the empire of Rome with relative peace and safety, stability, expansion, Keeping the peace was important to the Jewish leaders because even being under the rule of Rome, they were allowed to practice their religion without being hassled as long as they didn't cause trouble for the authorities. They had to keep the status quo. They had a self-protecting bias. And that's an important factor here. The bias that they had was to protect their situation. Now, the bias of the Jewish leaders was focused on their life view. They had a life view of maintaining their place and their nation within the context of, hey, we can live in peace here. Now, this was a legitimate focus. However, their bias toward that focus blinded them to the truth that was right before them. The truth like, one, they had never heard anyone speak like this before. And two, Jesus literally raising Lazarus from the dead after four days. Those are pretty serious pieces of evidence to take a look at and say, hey, maybe we should reconsider how we're thinking based on what we're seeing. But their actions would verify that life view, that bias. John 11, uh, let's go to 49, 50, and 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Mm. Caiaphas was appointed by the Roman government. The Romans didn't allow the Jews to appoint their high priests anymore because they saw that position as having control of the politics in Israel. So we can see his motivation of wanting to keep, again, the peace, everything the way it's always been. This is that self-protecting bias blinding him from seeing truth right in front of him. Caiaphas had the self-protecting bias that represented the self-protecting bias of the body, the ruling body within the Jewish nation. It was all about themselves, in spite, Jonathan, in spite of the evidence that you had just talked about. This was undeniable, powerful evidence of something so much bigger. So we look at this self-protecting bias. So now we've got to look at what's the bias warning here. The warning is bias brings, feeds, and manifests self-protective, narrow-mindedness, and bitterness. Just let those words sink in. Self-protective, narrow-mindedness, and bitterness. That's what this bias can bring to us. Do we want that in our lives? We really shouldn't want that, but we end up being comfortable with that. Proverbs 16.25. There is a way which seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. It seems right, it feels right, it's comfortable, but it's the way of death, just ask the Pharisees. They're being cast off as a nation. All of those bad things that happened because they were so stuck in their bias against Jesus because they were self-protective. So Jonathan, the baseless basis of bias, where are we so far? Bias can be forcefully driven by a powerful need to protect ourselves. This need could be manifested by the poorest of the poor and just as easily by those who have great power and authority. The point is, self-protection in imperfect humanity can be a shield that repels the truths that can truly protect it. That last point, Jonathan, is so important. Self-protection, because we're imperfect, can actually shield us from the truths that actually would protect us. That's the 
convoluted damage that bias can bring to us. It can be easy to see the bias that the Pharisees had back in Jesus' day. It's not as easy to see the bias that we can have right here and now in our day. The hypocrisy of the religious rulers in Jesus' day is disturbing. What should we do to keep such a level of bias away from us? The first thing we need to do is acknowledge that just because we're Christians, we're not exempt from such blatant bias. This acknowledgement is sobering, and if embraced, it can set us onto a path of not only observing, but dealing with such issues. Because our personal biases feel right, they are by definition really hard to eradicate. Sometimes bias can be such a part of us that we don't really give it any thought. So we want to recognize it in order to consider doing something about it. Let me read our bias definition again. An inclination or outlook that prevents an unprejudiced consideration of a matter. So how do we calm and correct our self-protecting bias? All right, so each time we introduce a kind of bias, we want to say, all right, here it is. We all agree, not, not looking so good. So now we have to address, how do you calm it down? How do you take the edge off of it so it's in a position so it can be corrected? Well, instead of our bias, remember, Jonathan, you said bias bows to no one. Let us bow in humility before our God who is ever just and impartial. It sounds so easy. Well, just be humble. Look, humility is important and it's a foundation. But unless something is built upon the humility, it doesn't last. It wears off. Mm. Humility needs wisdom. Proverbs 16, 16. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. See, wisdom is not tangible. Gold and silver, they are. And it's so easy to strive after the earthly things. But the wisdom makes the humility a powerful tool for being able to stand outside of such things as the self-protective bias. True and pure wisdom, that's what we want. That's the things that we should be striving for. They come from above. James 1, 5 to 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, if we're double-minded, we're lacking humility. Okay, because we're, we're, we're following different, different things. If we're double-minded, we're lacking wisdom. Wisdom and humility need to be put together so that we can have our bias begin to shrink instead of bowing to no one. So we were saying, okay, how do we calm and correct this self-protecting bias? We look for humility. We look through God's wisdom. Now we want to break it in pieces. So what's our Christian bias buster here? Julie, what is it? <laughs> our bias buster. Huh? Bias buster. Okay. <laughs> well, I think our first and highest loyalty is to God through Christ. And if we're self-protection, that implies that we're driving our own preservation. So we want to instead give that preservation work over to our Heavenly Father and His providence, because He is surely going to do a better job than we could ever do. So loyalty, the key to busting that self-preserving bias is where is my ultimate loyalty? If it is to me, well, then I'm going to be biased. If it is to my Heavenly Father, truly, honestly, genuinely to Him, then the bias has a chance of being dissolved because His providence is different than my idea of life. And you know what? Just, just a quick personal experience. I have found that to be so true. I try really hard to follow God's will, but I can't tell you how many times Rick's way is not the right way. It just doesn't work because God's providence knows more, is bigger, and is better. Let's continue. Let's go on to another type or another uh, manifestation of bias. Why don't we look at bias in action? Bias blocks our ability to listen. If you haven't noticed, you have mm -hmm. two ears and one mouth, and that means we should be doing a lot of listening. 
bias tends to take that ability away. And a good example of this kind of bias was evident in the Old Testament account of Naaman. Now, Naaman was a pagan army captain, a very well-known pagan army captain. 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Now, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. So he's a valiant warrior, but he's a leper. Now, we're going to sum up a few verses. He was great and honorable and a courageous man, whom the Lord God had favored. Now, Aram is the Hebrew word for Syria, and Naaman and his king, they're, you said they were pagan. They're actually enemies, remember, of Israel and Judah. So quick question, though, is the Lord showing a bias towards this Naaman? Because how can the Lord favor him uh, without being biased towards him in a good way? Uh, again, God's favor comes to those who are serving higher standards, serving righteousness. And, and even though he's pagan, obviously he was standing for much higher principles than those around him. And God favors that. He just does. That's not bias. That's sense. That's common mm -hmm. sense when righteousness is, is, should be the rule of the day. So Naaman finds out that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal his leprosy. And so goes to his king. His king sends a letter to Israel's king along with a pile of riches requesting Naaman's healing. Now Israel's king, well, Israel's king was dismayed to say the least at the request and saw it as the king of Aram trying to start trouble. Now you said there's a pile of riches. Some estimate that those riches in today's dollars would be worth well over $3 million. It's gold, it's changes of clothing. And the king here is saying, well, how am I supposed to cure leprosy? Who am I, God? Is this some kind of trick before they invade us again? And the king tears his own clothes with grief because he's suspicious and he's fearful about what's the trick in this. So let's move on to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. Notice what just happened. Elisha doesn't go out to personally meet him. He sends a messenger with simple instructions. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leprosy. Are not Abani and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So we turned and went away in a rage. This is ridiculous. Doesn't he know who I am? I'm a mighty warrior. The Jordan River's small and dirty. We have better rivers. This is beneath me. Forget it. This wasn't what he expected, and he turned away because of his bias. His heart was full of pride, expecting honor and fanfare. Instead, he was given the solution, but he couldn't see the solution because he was blinded by the expectation. And that is where we fall down regularly, day after day after day after day. We become like Naaman because we have an expectation, a preconceived notion of what something should be, when in fact, God's way is probably very, very different. And he saw Elisha's not even coming out to meet him as a deep insult because he is such a mighty man, such a well-recognized man, and he's got all this money. And he's like, the guy doesn't even come out? And that's why he leaves in this incredible, incredible rage. We've got to pause here and put out a bias warning. Julie, what is it? Personal status can easily develop a bias that shuts down any instruction from those we perceive as beneath us. Listening is insulting. And you know, think about personal status for a minute. Think about the status that we proclaim ourselves to have when we go online and with social media. We proclaim a status to be influencing others, and we have expectations because of that. That creates a bias which shields us from truth, and in this case, shields us from a solution. Listening ends up being insulting, like you said. That's not 
the way we're supposed to be wired if we're following after God's will. Jonathan, let's go to Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And in a deeper sense, an example of those not wanting to listen was when Stephen's witnessed to the truth in Acts 7, 57. It says, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. Their bias drove them to murder an innocent man. In Naaman's case, his bias drove him away from the solution to a really big problem. In the case of Stephen, those who were after him weren't going to listen. They didn't want to hear it. All they waited for was the, were the words that would just give them, in their own minds, justification to do what they had already decided they were going to do. The bias takes our capacity to actually listen and hear, and it buries it. And in that case, Jonathan, like you said, they literally covered their ears. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I don't hear you. I don't hear you. Just like a child. But folks, we get that way. We become like children with our biases where we refuse to listen. So let's put this in perspective. What is the baseless basis of bias here? Bias creates expectations. Expectations bring anticipation. When we are met with what we perceive as an inferior solution to our circumstance, the letdown shuts down our ability to receive that solution. We categorically reject that solution and thereby may be rejecting exactly what we may need. And we may be rejecting exactly what God's providence has in store for us because we've decided it's not coming the way we want it to come. So we've got this problem. We've got this issue. Now what? Well, how are we going to go about calming and correcting our blocked listening bias? That's a big, 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 very important question. Instead of allowing our bias to block our ability to hear, let's reframe our expectations reframe our expectations towards truth rather than toward our preconceived expectations. You have to make a choice. Where are my expectations focusing? Are they on truth, whatever it is, or what I would rather have happen? Naaman actually did just that. So he's gone away in a rage, but what we're going to see is he actually does this and became able to humbly hear. How did that happen? Let's look at 2 Kings 5, 13 to 15. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then, when he says to you, wash and be clean? His servants realize their master is going to lose out on this opportunity because of pride and because he's being stubborn. So they intervene with common sense. Here he'd come this far. What do you have to lose? Just go wash in the Jordan River. And sometimes there's a lot to learn from these minor unnamed people in the Bible. We want to watch for opportunities when we can be like Naaman's servants to steer people towards the godly answer. And when we pray for God's will to be done, we leave it in God's hands because it might not be exactly the way we wanted, but it'll be the way we need it. So Naaman went down and dipped himself several times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. What a dramatic result once Naaman let go of his indignant pride. It is a dramatic result. You know what? It's always a dramatic result when we let go of our indignant pride and we put our self-bias away, that bias that decides not to listen, and we actually are open to, here's an idea, be open to actual godly truth. That's what Naaman was open to, and he recognized that there is a God, and he is in Israel. The ability to hear stems from a desire for truth. If we don't have a desire for truth, we're not going to have an ability to hear. We're going to just be stuck where we are. James 1, 18 to 20. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Naaman had gone away in a rage. The anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. He was not quick to hear. He was quick to anger. James is telling us 
exactly the opposite, is the way that we can have a Christian bias buster. So, Julie, what is it? (laughs) Well, our bias buster would be to stay focused on God's will as first in our lives, and we have to apply the discipline needed to take a breath and reassess our expectations because we can't hear God's words and directions when our personal expectations are shouting them down. Hmm. We also have to remember that blessings can come from the most unexpected places, but we need to be tuned in to watch for them because sometimes we just need to get out of our own way. And just as a quick plug for Elisha, he did not accept that $3 million. He turned away any money for doing this kind of work. Why? Because he was about doing the work of God, not serving the wishes of man. His loyalty was in one place only. Truth brings a breaking of bias. You have it on every level in that account. It's startling to realize that our anger can, in some cases, be a symptom of our bias. Makes you want to just do what the scriptures say and pause and consider. So bias reveals itself in self-preservation and also in our personal expectations. Where else do we need to look to expose it? Well, the next area we want to examine is that of our associations. It's no secret that different religions or different social or political groups would all have biases toward the other. This is plainly obvious when we observe the social media vitriol groups display toward one another. Okay, that's there. But you know what? Let, let's, let's go deeper than that. Let's look within just one group. Not one group to another group, but within one group. What will we find? Remember our working definition of bias, an inclination or outlook that prevents an unprejudiced consideration of a matter. Looking again at bias in action, meaning what it does, we can see that bias builds walls. This takes time and effort. Now, this is a really big accomplishment of bias, (laughs) the capacity to build very big, strong, thick walls. So let's take a look at this and how to pull it apart. The early Christian church, they had to deal with massive issues regarding their own structure as they came from opposing backgrounds. You had the Jewish background Christians and the Gentile background Christians. Dealing with this required patience, wisdom, and most importantly, it required truth. The Acts 15 conference in Jerusalem is a classic example of revealing bias at work and also reflects the spiritual maturity that they needed to have to find a suitable solution. The Jerusalem conference, also called the Jerusalem Council, was a meeting to determine if the new Gentile Christians had to become Jews first and whether they had to observe the Mosaic law. A delegation led by Paul and his companion Barnabas was appointed to confer with the elders of the church in Jerusalem. The conference was led by Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. We have some Bible commentary by Albert Barnes. Uh, He said this, The account which follows is a record of the first internal dissension which occurred in the Christian church. Hitherto they had been struggling against external foes. Violent persecutions had raged and had fully occupied the attention of the Christians, but now the churches were at peace. They enjoyed great external prosperity in Antioch, but Satan took occasion then, as he has often done in similar circumstances, since to excite contentions in the church itself so that when external violence couldn't destroy it, an effort was made to secure the same object by internal dissension and strife, and it shows the manner in which such controversies were settled in apostolic times. Shows the manner in which such controversies were settled. We need to pay close attention to how that works because this, it is really hard to describe how big a problem this was because we're, we're so far removed from it. But this was a church make or break scenario for the young gospel church at that time. Our long-held biases may not only skew our personal capacity to embrace complete truth, but they can also, because of their deeply rehearsed strength, every bias has a deeply rehearsed strength, because of that, it can press others to either comply or go away. So it doesn't only necessarily affect the way I see things, 
but I, through my biased opinion, can affect the way you have to deal with things. So we've got to pay close attention here. Let's look at Acts chapter 15. We won't go through all of the verses. We're going to go through several selected verses. Let's start with Acts 15, uh, 1 and 2. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, that's a very straightforward, plain, undeniable statement. You don't need to ask for clarity, all right? They've stated this immovable stance drew an unmistakable line in the sand regarding the very basis of Christianity. No circumcision, no Christianity. That's essentially what they were saying. Such a dramatic stance is often met with a similarly immovable opposing stance. Let's go on to verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. Okay, so you've got the statement and then the dissension and the debate. And people notoriously leave it here and just fight. And that's essentially what began to happen. You had this fight. You had these two immovable stances that said, yeah, it's got to be. And there was no, it no, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. No, it doesn't. Yeah, and you go back and forth forever on that. This doesn't solve anything. That arguing doesn't solve anything. And here's why this is such an important circumstance, because in this case, something else happened. Jonathan, let's go back to verse 2. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Now, that's a great idea, because this was becoming so contentious locally. We need to talk this out, find out the Lord's will on the matter. Let's go to Jerusalem, gather the spiritual minds of our time. We'll reason it out by listening to both sides. Let's hear what they have to say. All right. Okay. And that, and that is, that's a powerful, powerful idea. Because our building walls instead of bridges is such a fundamental and common practice in our day, we need to really, really pause a moment here and see why these Jewish Christians held this belief. One of the most fundamental aspects of being able to listen so that you cannot build a wall is to understand why someone thinks the way they think. So let's go back and look at a bit of Jewish history to understand this. It's about circumcision. Now look, circumcision was not merely a requirement of the Jewish law. It had been established with Abraham way back when he was 99 years old, even before Isaac was born. The context of the following verses in Genesis we're going to read is God reiterating his promise to Abraham and changing Abram's name to Abraham. So this is a big moment in Abraham's life. His name is being changed, he's reiterating the promise, and he's instituting this rite of circumcision. Genesis 17, we'll do verses 9 through 10, then 12 and 14. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my commandment, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, this is why they put up a wall. (laughs) Exactly. You know, you can see why the Jewish Christians are going to be so passionate about keeping this ritual because they think they're doing as God commanded. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant he made with them. You and your descendants after you throughout your generations. Well, that seems unmistakable. This required ritual was even repeated in the law in Leviticus 12. So, Rick, this is a good argument. Their bias is based on something godly and true. They think they're doing the right thing. What's wrong with that? Well, they do think they're doing the right thing, and they do have incredible basis for it. Their minds had these long-held, historically sound beliefs uh, of God working with Abraham and his seed. And for them, this isn't bias. This is simple fact. It's a simple fact. This is following a commandment of God We can't give this up because it is incredibly obvious, overly obvious, that you have to have circumcision. I mean, why can't you see that? That's where they're standing. So before we get into breaking this down and explaining a little bit further, there's a real serious bias warning here. Julie, what is it? 
Well, in this case, bias can be founded in solid truth. And if left unchecked, it will only grow and dominate with time. So we even need to be careful in this situation. So what we're saying is that we're going to see they did have, in fact, a bias that went beyond truth. And we got to be careful that just because we have a basis of truth doesn't mean that everything that we've concluded about it is exactly the way that truth is meant to be understood. How can this be rectified? How could this building of a wall, this big, strong, history-based, God-based wall be turned into the building of a bridge that would be able to communicate with those on the other side? Well, here's the answer. God had already built the pathway. He had already put the pathway in place. It just needed to be paved, okay? Christianity would be such a paradigm shift away from the following of the law to which God's chosen people were beholden. How do you fix that? Well, God long ago established pathways for embracing Christianity. He put the breadcrumbs out, and when the time came, it became obvious. So let's look at just a couple of those breadcrumbs first. First, the pathway began with Old Testament prophecies. We'll just pick one, Isaiah 49, 6. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So you have very obviously the opening up of favor. You know, earlier we were talking about God choosing a people. This is opening up favor beyond the Jewish nation in the Old Testament. It's a very plain, straightforward expansion that certainly was not in place when Isaiah was speaking. But it was something to look toward the future. God was letting us know this was going to happen. This expansion continued with New Testament prophecy. And interestingly, Simeon, at the time of Jesus' own circumcision, when Jesus was just eight days old, prophesied none other than favor to the Gentiles. Simeon was the righteous and devout old man who'd been promised to see the Messiah with his own eyes. When Joseph and Mary took the baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, Simeon picked him up, and his account is in Luke 2, 30-32. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So we have the Messiah as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. But is that enough proof to cancel out all those years of Jewish circumcision? No, no, it's not. It's more breadcrumbs, but it's not enough proof yet. See, God built the way to understand it in stages, in pieces, so that once you put it all together, you say, oh, this makes perfect sense. The clincher on all of this is the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter was given a vision of this pathway and was specifically told that what was once unclean would now be clean. This is in Acts 10, 11 to 16. This is the vision that the Apostle Peter had before being drawn to go see Cornelius. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So let's look at what Peter was shown in this vision. Peter was told to break the Jewish law. That's what he's told. Eat the unclean meat. No way. Not doing it. Never have. Eat the unclean meat. No way. And then God says, what God has cleansed is no longer unclean, is no longer unholy. God is telling Peter unequivocally that... That which was once considered unapproachable is now where you need to go. And that's why he would go to Cornelius next. He told Peter to break the law. Circumcision was a right of the law. And what we see in the New Testament is with the law, circumcision, physical circumcision was put aside and replaced with circumcision of the heart. Just like we are to keep the spirit of the law, but not the letter of the law. It is raising it up to a spiritual level not a physical level. Peter saw the vision three times. The number three in the Bible represents completeness. 
So in this case, God is completely changing the method of drawing people to himself, and he used Peter because of the respect he held with all the Christians. Following this vision, Cornelius and his household were the first Gentile converts. So you can see that the breadcrumbs became essentially a superhighway here when Peter had this vision. So let's take a look now. Remember, we're talking about the, the kind of bias that builds walls. So we want to understand that. The baseless basis of bias, Jonathan, where are we now? Bias builds walls. These walls are especially thick and strong when our rationalization for them has a basis in biblical truth. These walls can and will undermine tolerance and mutual respect, even within the sacredness of true Christianity. Left unchallenged, they cut off the necessary life-giving support we as followers of Christ need from one another. These walls are dangerous to our Christian health. They really are dangerous to our Christian health. And just because we don't have a Jewish background doesn't mean we can't have solid Christian biases that are based in truth but are misrepresented in the way that we are following them. We need to be careful because building walls is not what Christianity is all about. Talk about a serious warning. This makes us really think about what we're building and why we're building it. So, how do we go about neutralizing bias with when such deep-seated and seemingly justifiable beliefs exist? Is it even possible? Well, while it's possible to neutralize these things, it's a very difficult task. The longer any of us has had a specific mode of thinking, the harder it is to break away from its influence. This is especially true when it comes to beliefs that we consider to be sacred. The big issue here was that God had instituted a dramatic change and all followers of Jesus were called to comply with it. All followers were called to comply with this dramatic change. Repeating our working definition of bias. An inclination or outlook that prevents an unprejudiced consideration of a matter. Okay, so Rick, how do we go about calming and correcting our building walls instead of bridges bias? All right, calm it down. First thing we have to do is calm it down. We have to get out of the emotional, um, the emotional ruckus that the bias produces so that we can begin to correct it. How do we do that? Well, let's go back to our example in Acts chapter 15. The apostles and elders modeled a detailed process to dismantle the walls and build bridges. There's two things that have to happen. One, you have to take the walls down, and two, you have to build something in their place. Now, here's how they did it. All sides were allowed to engage in what became a very provocative conflict. They had the opportunity to speak, to listen, to consider, and to follow the evidence that verifies truth. Let's look at Acts chapter 15, 4 to 8. When they arrived at Jerusalem, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. These are former Pharisees. So remember, they're going to be trained in a very legalistic way of thinking. And knowing this helps us understand the perspective they're coming from. They accepted Jesus, but they wanted to maintain the rituals of the law because it's all they knew. Matthew Henry's concise commentary has this great quote, There is a strange proneness in us to think that all do wrong who do not do just as we do. And what a great way to describe bias. Let's move on here now. Jonathan, verses 6 and 7. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter after there had been much debate. Okay, let, let, let's pause there. After there had been much debate, what that tells us is that all are heard. And presumably... After there had been much debate, once all are exercised by listening as well. So the whole point of this was to be able to be heard and to be able to hear. That's the key. You don't break a bias building mentality, a wall building mentality by just speaking your mind. You break it by listening to the mind of those that you are opposed to. And in this case, you had that back and forth and then apostleship speaks and none other than the apostle Peter. Jonathan, let's continue. Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, 
the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Peter makes this very plain, straightforward, very clear statement. The giving of the Spirit was an undeniable fact. He's saying this is a fact of something much bigger. In my own little brain, here's what happened. You've got this wall between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and there's the debating from one side of the wall to the other. Peter climbs up on top of the wall, and he stands there, and he looks at both sides, and he says, look, this is what's happened. They've been given God's Spirit. But there was more than that. There was more than that. Acts 15, 9 to 11. And Peter said, God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Yeah, remember how Peter learned this through that vision of the clean and unclean animals, the three visions he saw. Continuing, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, we've been trying for generations to keep the law, and it hasn't worked. And the Apostle Paul makes a similar argument in Galatians 3. If the law doesn't bring us to salvation, why would we go back to it? Why put these new Gentile Christians under those restrictions? Continuing, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way also they are. Salvation is not from the law, but through Jesus. But to defend the Jewish argument, Isn't this human reasoning in effect saying, well, the law was too difficult for us, so let's lower its standards? Well, no, the the point was not that you were lowering the standards of the law at all. The point is the law couldn't bring imperfect men to the perfect obedience to God through Christ. So it was abolished. It was nailed to the cross. It was put aside so that the spirit of the law with God's spirit would actually get the job done. The law was given to show that man is imperfect and can't please God. God's Spirit was given to show that through his touching of the hearts from the inside out, not the outside in, that's where the changes would happen. So this is not watering something down. It's changing the focus, and there's a tremendous difficulty in this because this is a life of sacrifice, a life of self-denial, very, very, very different. We see this, I think, elevation of standard. And another fact was that God's blessing was upon both Jew and Gentile Christian alike. They were equally favored, equally favored. See, Peter has made these points, and what happens next? Well, apostleship was followed up with more apostleship. And it's interesting that you had this major, major conflict, and these two apostles, Peter and Paul, were the two that really were able to calm the situation. The Apostle Paul brings further evidences from many places to show what God's will was. Let's go to Acts 15 now, verse 12. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Without having been under the law, they're getting all these signs and wonders. So what first strikes me is that even though this is very passionate and it's life-altering, this discussion, it says all the people kept silent and were listening to Barnabas and Paul. Look at the respect that they were shown. The people are actually listening. They're not just waiting for the explanation to be over so that they can talk again. (laughs) How many times do we do that? Yeah, yeah. So, So you see the power of the Apostle Paul with Barnabas by his side saying, and this is what happened here, and here's the miraculous changes that happened here, and here are the churches we established there. You can't deny the evidence that they were showing in this circumstance. And the point of Barnabas and Paul was it was obvious through their own personal experience that God had accepted the Gentiles who were not under the law. So there had to be another pathway. There was undeniable evidence beyond just Barnabas and Paul's opinions. Right, because these churches were existing at that very moment, doing the work of the gospel at that very moment in all of these Gentile, previously unclean places. So you you have the evidence. And so here's what happens. There's progress. Opposing sides found common ground, and then they were able to move forward. Acts 15, we're going to skip several verses, go down to verses 22 to 23. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas, and they sent letters by them. 
And those letters were proclaiming what they had concluded and what they had compromised, how the group had actually come together. And upon arriving, this letter was read and it was accepted with rejoicing. In other words, it helped everybody see, we don't have to fight. We can actually combine forces. We can actually work together. It was a provoking that worked positively. This is a good example of how a bridge is built from both sides. There was listening, respect, being willing to change their way of thinking based on valid input. And the apostles and the elders had this teachable and humble spirit that I know I certainly want. And what happened? They dismantled the wall. Well, what do you do with the bricks that were in that wall? You know, you know what you do with those bricks? You build the bridge. That's what uh-huh. you do with it. And you build it from both sides. And so the bridge replaces the wall. The ability to go back and forth replaces the knocking of your head against the wall. And it helped Christianity become unified. Several years later, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians from prison, and he reminded them of the power of a broken bias, power of a broken bias. He begins by reminding the Gentile Christians of their ungodly and hopeless heritage, where they came from, Ephesians 2, 11 to 16. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So then he's showing what they didn't have. He then reminds them of the extraordinary privilege of the call to Christ. And this extraordinary privilege came because the vision to Peter said, that which was once unclean now is clean. Jonathan verses 13 to 16. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. The wall was taken down, the hostility was put to death, and in its place was built a bridge where those can go, those Christians can go back and forth and back and forth and rejoice and grow together as one body as they were meant to be. There is such power and grace in breaking down the walls of bias with God's truth. That's the way you break them down. You need to know God's truth. You need to know the word. Second Timothy two fourteen to 15. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which are useless and lead to ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So what this is saying to me is God's word is the measuring stick of truth. So if we build Christian doctrines based on tradition, and it's not founded in the Bible, that would be an ungodly bias. We have personal accountability to not just accept what we hear. Right, and what we need to do is we need to individually, as best as we are capable of, go back to the word of truth and try and uncover it and study it, not just individually, but collectively as groups of Christians so we can really, truly understand God's word. And when you have a study with others, here's an idea. You listen to their perspectives. You listen, you hear the scriptures they bring in and the thoughts they bring in, and you put it together and you see something so much bigger. So we need to know the word, and then we need to be doers of that word. We need to live what we know. James 1, 22 to 24. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So if we do our study, but we don't apply our study, we have just spent time 
uselessly, and we've essentially given ourselves the opportunity to create more bias. That's not what this is about. This is about knowing the word and then living what you know from the word, not what I'd like it to be. Julie, our final Christian bias buster. Let's bust this thing wide open. What do we have? (laughs) Well, while building walls based upon our adhering to what we believe to have been true can be appropriate, we must be sure that we're seeing the whole godly truth of the matter. So let us be sure that our interpretation is always subject to the test of biblical truth. When there's cracks in the foundation of our interpretation, we want to recognize them and search deeply within to see what might truly be driving our conclusions. Let's repel bias and embrace God's truth. Repel bias, embrace God's truth, take down the walls, build the bridges, because that's what Christianity is founded on. Folks, bias is a big problem. It's a problem in our world. It's rampant everywhere. The question I want to ask myself is, is it rampant in me? Is it hiding in me? What do I need to do to overcome it? In our next episode on this, we're going to talk about bias that burns bridges, bias that belittles others, and bias that breaks trust. These are things that we need to be so careful about, so wary about as we move forward. Bias is a problem. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Like we said, coming up on our next episode, Is My Christian Judgment Tainted by Bias? We're going to look at part two. We'll talk to you next week.